This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. The signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer can be vague and nonspecific. This makes it a difficult cancer to diagnose. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with two of the authors of a practice article published in CMAJ called Five Things to Know About Diagnosing Ovarian Cancer. Dr. Melissa Walker is a fifth-year resident in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Toronto. Dr. Mara Sobel is an OBGYN and assistant professor at the University of Toronto. They're joining me today to discuss diagnosing ovarian cancer. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start off with some introductions. Why don't each of you tell me a bit about who you are and where you work? Sure. So my name is Melissa Walker. I am a PGY-5 at the University of Toronto, uh, completing my residency in obstetrics and gynecology and have um, a number of research interests, but um, most recently with Dr. Sobel looking at women with uh, hereditary ovarian cancer syndrome. And my name is Mara Sobel. I'm a staff obstetrician gynecologist at Mount Sinai Hospital. I also work at Women's College Hospital I have um, an interest in minimally invasive surgery, and uh, together we we work at this preventive ovarian cancer clinic, and working with women at this clinic has inspired us to write this article and hopefully um, help primary care physicians in diagnosing this uh, difficult disease. So what particularly made you write this practice article for CMAJ? This is Melissa speaking. So there are a few things that prompted us to write this article. Uh, I think the first thing is that both patients and physicians worry about ovarian cancer. And I think that's driven by two major reasons. The first, as you mentioned, is that ovarian cancer often presents with very vague and nonspecific symptoms. And this can lead to a delay in diagnosis or uh or difficulty navigating the investigations that would be appropriate. And I think the second is that ovarian cancer, unfortunately, has a poor prognosis. Um, and this is often secondary to the advanced stage uh, at the time of diagnosis. So I think these two things drive um, some fear in patients and also in primary care doctors. Uh, and we hope that by writing this article, we could bring some clarity on the signs and symptoms that would be concerning for ovarian cancer, the populations that would be at risk, and how to guide physicians in the initial workup and management uh, of these patients. Well, I think a lot of primary care doctors feel really powerless about ovarian cancer. We know that ovarian cancer is difficult to diagnose. What are the signs and symptoms that we know warrant further investigation? So there are a number of things that are kind of more common in women who will present with an ovarian cancer. These typically are around abdominal and pelvic pain or bloating, uh, early satiety. Often they have urinary symptoms like urgency and frequency. 
uh, and bowel symptoms or may present with constitutional symptoms. Uh, however, we obviously appreciate that these are very nonspecific symptoms, which adds to the diagnostic challenge. I think the important thing to keep in mind is uh, the age and menopausal status of the woman, because certainly a postmenopausal woman with these symptoms would be more concerning. And secondly, when the symptoms are frequent, persistent, and severe, uh, that would prompt the primary care doctor to warrant further investigation. If it's something transient that resolves spontaneously, then the suspicion for ovarian cancer would go down. So let's talk about that hypothetical patient. A patient comes to you uh, or to a primary care doc with clusters of symptoms, nonspecific, not really sure what's wrong with her. What should happen next? So certainly starting with a thorough history is important. Uh, and like we mentioned, paying specific attention to the duration, frequency, and severity of these symptoms. Obviously, a general uh, past gynecologic history specifically focusing on uh, the patient's menopausal status, use of hormone replacement therapy, their obstetrical history, and uh, specific attention also paid to family history, not only of ovarian cancer, but of other cancers like breast, colon, or endometrial cancer that may indicate a genetic syndrome that would increase the woman's baseline risk of ovarian cancer, which is about 1.4% or 1 in 70 women in the Canadian population. So once you've established a history, then, uh, you know, uh, moving on to a physical exam, um, and we recognize that pelvic exams can be difficult depending on patient factors and physician comfort, but uh, we, we do recommend an abdominal and bimanual pelvic examination because malignant masses would typically present as, as larger, firmer, or fixed masses that are palpated in the pelvis. Um, but again, important to note that a normal physical exam does not rule out early stage disease. So after the physical exam, then um, the first line imaging modality should be a transvaginal ultrasound in these women. This is the best way to uh, assess pelvic structures initially. In the article, you, you talk about concerning ultrasound features. What are some of the features of ultrasound that are, would concern you? This is Mara speaking. So features on ultrasound that make us more worried include when the cysts are bilateral and involving both ovaries, when the cysts are multilocular, which means that there's multiple smaller cysts within the larger ovarian mass, or you could think of this as having septums or walls inside, when there's solid components, and when there's presence of either intra-abdominal metastases or ascites. Women that are undergoing serial ultrasound, which sometimes happens when you're monitoring a cyst, when you see that cyst change, so when it's growing rapidly or when the features are changing over time, that's also concerning. We think it's important to note that ovarian cysts are really common, and when you have a simple ovarian cyst, so a cyst that's mainly filled with just fluid and has a thin wall, that these are common and often resolve on their own or and are almost certainly benign and do not warrant um, extensive further investigation. So when you say that ovarian cysts are common, how common are they? I'm not sure that we can give you an exact number for how common they are, but I can say that in my practice, the like a vast majority of consults that come through are for ovarian cysts, and these can vary quite dramatically. I have women referred to me with one and two centimeters simple cysts, which I think we want to reassure 
primary care physicians that these aren't really anything to worry about. Of course, we're like we're happy to to see these patients and reassure them. But often, if these cysts are simple and small, um, like a, a one follow up ultrasound is sufficient, and if they're not growing, that probably no further investigations are warranted. Um, however, of course, more complex cysts warrant further investigations and referral to a specialist. You mentioned in your article that sometimes serum tumor markers can be helpful. This has been controversial, I guess. When should those tests be ordered? So tumor markers can be very helpful in uh, the workup of an adnexal mass, um, but really the key is ordering the right tumor marker in the right population and understanding the interpretation uh, in the context of that patient. So um, ovarian cancers can arise from any of the cells that make up the ovaries. So this can be the epithelial cells, germ cells, or stroma. And really the tumor markers that we order uh, can indicate an abnormality based on which type of cell is abnormal. It's important to also note that tumors, tumor markers are not perfect. Uh, and even in the presence of normal tumor markers, uh, with other concerning features, for example, on ultrasound or with family history, uh, they do guide us, but they don't make the diagnosis 100% of the time. Um, CA-125 is certainly the most well-known tumor marker and can aid in the diagnosis of ovarian cancers that are epithelial in origin. And this is the most common and aggressive uh, cancer, typically in the postmenopausal population. This is the population that CA-125 is usually the most helpful in. Um, sometimes it is appropriate to order a CA-125 in a premenopausal woman, but we want primary care doctors to know that benign conditions such as endometriosis, fibroids, even menstruation, which are obviously very common in the premenopausal population, can cause my mild elevations in CA-125. And so these results have to be interpreted with caution. Uh, in the adolescent and premenopausal population, where non-epithelial ovarian cancers like germ cell tumors are more prevalent. There are other tumor markers like lactate dehydrogenase, alpha-fetoprotein, and beta-HCG that can aid in the diagnosis of the specific germ cell tumor. So just to recap, when should those tests be ordered? So in the workup of a patient who's found to have a complex ovarian cyst on imaging, we recommend CA-125, particularly in the postmenopausal population, if the woman is premenopausal or uh, in the adolescent group, then we recommend uh, CA-125, but also uh, other markers of germ cell tumors that are more prevalent, so the lactate dehydrogenase, the alpha-fetoprotein, and beta-HCG. Thanks for clarifying. In your article, you talk about a scoring system called the Risk of Malignancy Index 2. Can you explain what this is and when it should be used? Sure. So... The Risk of Malignancy Index 2, or RMI2, is a scoring system that incorporates a woman's menopausal status, uh, the CA125 value, and ultrasound findings, and this helps to determine her risk of ovarian cancer. We know that a score of greater than 200 uh, has shown to be a higher positive predictive value for malignancy and essentially warrants direct referral to gynae-oncology for assessment. Here's an example of two patients who would have very different scores based on their menopausal status and their ultrasound findings. 
The first is a 58-year-old postmenopausal woman who has a CA125 value of 45 and ultrasound findings of a unilateral multiloculated cyst that has some solid components. She would receive a score of 4 for her postmenopausal status, 45 for her CA125 value, and 4 for having two or more concerning features on her ultrasound, giving her a total score of 720. Contrast this to a 29-year-old premenopausal woman who also has a CA125 of 45, but she has a unilateral multiloculated cyst with no solid components. She would get a score of 1 for her premenopausal status, 45 for her CA125 value, and 1 for having only uh, one abnormality on her ultrasound findings with a total score of 45. So you can see how this type of scoring system can help stratify the risk of ovarian cancer and can account for mild elevations of CA125 in a premenopausal woman with an otherwise benign appearing ovarian cyst. Thanks. That's a great example of how all the concerning features brought together can help you to decide what to do next. Is there any kind of screening that is recommended for women to um, to find out if they have ovarian cancer? So unfortunately, for both low-risk and high-risk women, there's no efficient mode of screening these women where there's any difference in terms of picking up early uh, these cancers at an earlier stage and or improving survival. Different um, research papers have looked at strategies such as serial CA125, serial transvaginal ultrasound exams, and also serial pelvic exams. And there's no combination at present that seems to help us in screening women and making this diagnosis earlier. What makes a woman at higher risk of ovarian cancer? And what should a physician do when a patient is at higher risk or suspected of being at higher risk? So there are a number of hereditary ovarian cancer syndromes like BRCA1, BRCA2, and Lynch syndrome that can increase a woman's lifetime risk of ovarian cancer. As we mentioned, the baseline risk in Canadian women is 1 in 70, but this can be 20 or 30 times that rate in these high-risk populations. So certainly a patient that presents with a strong family history of breast, ovarian, colon, or endometrial cancer can indicate one of these hereditary hereditary syndromes at play. Depending on the specific situation, physicians can refer these women who meet specified criteria to genetic counselors for assessment of a hereditary ovarian cancer syndrome. It's a little bit challenging because the criteria for genetic counseling assessment does vary by province, so really is province-specific, but very clear in um, the types of cancers that need to be present that would deem a woman at high risk of having one of these syndromes. Once a hereditary ovarian cancer syndrome is identified, then there is extensive counseling that that woman should undergo with respect to her uh, genetic cancer risk and preventative strategies that can be undertaken. This kind of formed the foundation for the, the development of our preventive ovarian cancer clinic in Toronto. Uh, It's a multidisciplinary site designed to really meet the broad needs of this population. So the clinic is really composed of minimally invasive surgical gynecologists, gynecologic oncologists, menopausal specialists, 
uh, the breast team, genetic counselors, and lots of support staff so women can undergo counseling around their cancer risk. Certainly questions and concerns around contraception and fertility implications, uh, performing surgical risk reduction in this population. Uh, and also, and importantly, is uh, an aftercare program where menopausal symptoms can be managed. A lot of these women, because of their, their genetic risk, for example, the BRCA population, uh, may have a personal history of breast cancer, which would make hormone replacement therapy contraindicated. So uh, using non-hormonal options for women and optimizing other areas of their health, like their bone, cardiac, and uh, genital urinary health. Do you think that there is more of an awareness about ovarian cancer in the general population than there was, say, 10 or 20 years ago? We do. We think that lots of women and families are thinking about ovarian cancer and it's on people's radar. And this is probably due to a couple of factors. First of all, there's a lot more awareness now around these hereditary ovarian genetic syndromes. So families can understand their risk and take action to protect themselves. And this is um, bringing lots of knowledge about ovarian cancer to patients and the opportunity for patients to, to go get genetic screening and help improve the health of their families. I think another important um, change in the way we practice gynecology is this idea of an opportunistic salpingectomy. And so we know a lot more about high-grade ovarian cancer now, and we believe that, in fact, these cancers are originating from the end of the fallopian tube and not from the ovary. And this has empowered us to change the way we practice gynecology in ways that protect patients at the population level. So, for example, in the past, when women were interested in family planning, they may undergo a tubal ligation, but now instead we're removing fallopian tubes as part of family planning and hoping to protect women um, by a simple change in our surgical strategy. Similarly, when women undergo hysterectomies now, we also remove the fallopian tubes, and we're hoping that in time we'll see this population decrease in the rate of ovarian cancer by this simple strategy. That is really fascinating. Is that is that quite new evidence? Um, it, it's new, but we're collecting more and more evidence uh, to understand this, and, and really it's stemmed from the work that's been done in the BRCA, so the BRCA1 and 2 populations, these women are choosing to have their tubes and ovaries out at um, a certain age before their risk of ovarian cancer climbs in a way that protects them from developing ovarian cancer. But through doing this, we have all of these prophylactic tube and ovary specimens, and we're finding these early cancers in these high-risk women, and they all seem to be in the end of the fallopian tube. So this has really changed the way we think about ovarian cancer. It better explains to us why this disease is so aggressive because we think that it's shedding off of the fallopian tube and sort of spreading quickly in the abdomen. And it's also empowered us to to make changes that could, you know, uh, change the health of Canadian women at a national level. And so we feel really um, excited about sharing these changes with women. When women come to my office now and ask for tubal ligation, I, I counsel them that they should consider salpingectomy at cesarean sections. Our, our hospital is performing salpingectomies, and we never do a hysterectomy now and leave the fallopian tubes in. That's incredible. Thank you so much for talking to me today. This has been really interesting. Thank you very much for having us. Yes, thank you. 
I've been speaking with Dr. Melissa Walker and Dr. Mara Sobel from the University of Toronto. They both work at the Preventive Ovarian Cancer Clinic at Women's College Hospital in Toronto. To read the practice article they published, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes, and you can leave us a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.